morning. Thank you, Betty. Did an excellent job. Glad to see each one of you here this morning. I need to dispel a rumor. Uh, one of the members this morning asked me, said, I've heard a rumor that you're retiring. Fortunately or unfortunately, that is just a rumor. If any of you would like to underwrite that, however, we could probably move forward on that. Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, and verse number 18. History is filled with the stories of men who thought they could fight against God and succeed. Their ruined lives are evidence that it can't be done. The 18th century French agnostic Voltaire tried to destroy the church by ridicule, predicting that within 50 years of his death, people would have forgotten even who Christ was. Yet within 50 years of his death, the Genevan Bible Society was running off thousands of Bibles on presses that had been set up in Voltaire's former home. Frederick Nietzsche was the philosopher who coined the idea that God was dead and that Christianity was a despised religion of weaklings. Fighting God drove him insane, and he spent the last several years of his life hopelessly insane. Sinclair Lewis won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1930, and he fought against God in his book entitled Elmer Gantry. The book was about an evangelist who was also an alcoholic and who would sleep with any woman he could while getting rich at the expense of innocent people. For his mockery of Christianity, he was, he was hailed as the toast of the literary world and he won many prizes for his writing. But few people know that Sinclair Lewis died a hopeless alcoholic in a third-rate alcoholic clinic somewhere outside the city of Rome in absolute and utter obscurity. Another Nobel Prize winning author, Ernest Hemingway, considered himself living proof that one could successfully fight against God. He lived his life of adventure and sin against God seemingly without consequences until it all caught up with him one day and he took a shotgun and killed himself. Fighting against God just doesn't work. Now, Herod the king, and this is Herod Agrippa, if you look back at verse 1, you see that he had set himself to oppose the plan of God. He says, now about this time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass and that's a word that means to persecute or to harm or to cruelly attack. He set his hand to harass some from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to two, four squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him out before the people after the Passover. Remember from the last message, these verses lead right into the fact that Peter is in prison 
But then the night before he is to be executed, angels come into the prison and release him. And we pick up with a story in verse number 18. And I want you to note some things about standing against God. First of all, note that God's power is irresistible. Verse 18 says, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. Now, I think it's probably a bit of an understatement to say the next morning there was no small stir among the soldiers. Because in that day and time, if a prisoner escaped, the soldier who was guarding him would then be subject to the same penalty as the person who escaped. Peter was to be put to death. Herod, thinking this was some kind of an inside job, that somebody had been bribed, put the soldiers to death. Now, we don't know if he put the four who were immediately uh, connected with Peter to death, or he put all 16 soldiers to death. What we see in this story is that although the church was praying for Peter and praying for his release, it doesn't seem that they were praying in faith. For if they had truly been expecting God to work, they wouldn't have been so surprised when Peter shows up at the gate and tries to get entrance into the place where they were praying. If it were true that they were praying in faith, they would not have met Rhoda, the young lady who brings the message that Peter's at the gate, and say to her, you're out of your mind. You're insane. Or, if you saw anything, what you saw was an angel. But God is not limited by our prayer. God had determined to save Peter, and the way in which God had determined to save Peter was in response to the prayers of Christians who were praying. Luke clearly wants his readers to appreciate a very simple truth. No opposition. No matter how great or how sophisticated it may appear, can stand against the power of Almighty God. God may decide at any moment to arise and exert His sovereignty. And when He does, it is a terrifying prospect to those who have set themselves in opposition to Him. Martin Luther captures this marvelous truth in the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Not only is God's power irresistible, but notice that God's judgment is inescapable. It says in verse 20, and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there, and Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord and made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied by food, with food by the king's country. 
And so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on the throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Frustrated, King Agrippa retreats to the town that was founded by his grandfather, Caesarea. But he soon discovered that there is no place that you can hide from the justice of God. Peter has escaped the hand of Herod, but Herod will not be able to escape the judgment of God. Now the people of Tyre and Sidon on the seacoast west of Galilee were dependent on a good relationship with King Herod to maintain their food supplies. Somehow, they had offended Herod, and to keep from starving, they decided to do anything they needed to do to make amends with the king. When they arrive, Herod decides to demonstrate his power, and so he puts on a spectacle. He dressed in his finest robes, and with elaborate pageantry, he began to address the crowd. Now, either they're overwhelmed with his splendor, or more likely they're seeking to flatter his ego. The crowd began to shout, it is the voice of a God, not a man. Apparently, Herod's pride, which had been injured by Peter's escape, was now puffed up by the flattering cries of these people who called him a god, and Herod did nothing to correct them. Of course, one can contrast this with a similar situation in the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. If you look in Acts chapter 14, you'll discover that Paul had come to a place called Lystra, and there he had healed a cripple, a man who had been crippled from birth. The man jumped up, healed by the power of God, and immediately the multitudes began to cry, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul, his messenger, Hermes. The priest of Zeus brought oxen to sacrifice before them. And when they recognized what the multitudes were up to, It says that Barnabas and Paul tore their robes to show their disagreement with with these claims, and they cried out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the seas, and all the things that are in them. They continued to restrain the people, from daring to offer glory to them. But I want you to note that the proud are brought low. Verse 23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Well, there are certainly biblical principles that we can see that dealing with the issue of pride, the Bible is filled with warnings about the pride of men. Proverbs 29, 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. 
In James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There are many biblical examples. One of those, of a fir- the first in a long line of rulers who fought against God was the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was a Pharaoh at the time of Moses. The people of God had been in captivity for over 400 years, and God had given Moses the job of telling Pharaoh to let his people go. When Moses delivers the message to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response was, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Jehovah, nor will I let Israel go. This willful disobedience was extremely costly. It cost him his honor. It cost him his people. It cost him his kingdom. It cost him his only son. And still he fought against God until the day that God drowned drowned his army in the Red Sea. There's a story also of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. His story is found in the book of Daniel. In the fourth chapter of Daniel, there came a time when the great king Nebuchadnezzar stood on the roof of his great palace in Babylon. And he looked out over the hanging gardens, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He looked out over the magnificent city of Babylon. And he said, Is not this great Babylon which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Yet while he was still speaking, a voice from heaven said to him, Because you have not given glory to God, but have taken God's glory for yourself, you will become insane. You'll be driven from the company of men and you will live like an animal in the fields for seven years. Until you acknowledge that Jehovah is the true God over all men. Finally, God does reestablish Nebuchadnezzar after seven years to his throne. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the majesty of Jehovah alone. He said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all of his works or turn and all his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. We come back to Herod Agrippa. We have a very short passage there, but Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote rather graphic terms what had happened surrounding Herod's death. He said, Agrippa came to Caesarea where there was a festival for him. And on the second day, he put on a garment, covered it with silver. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment reflected the sun's rays in resplendence. So as to spread horror on those who were gazing at him. Presently, his flatterers cried out. That he was a God, adding, be merciful to us, for although till now we have reverenced you only as a man, henceforth we will regard you as superior to moral nature. 
But the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. Suddenly and violently, a severe pain arose in his stomach. Therefore, he looked at his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded now to leave this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just said to me. After five days, exhausted by the stomach pain, he died at the age of 54. King Agrippa certainly illustrates the truth that pride goes before a fall. There is a kind of a poetic justice in the death of Herod. He had, king, he had killed James, and he was going to kill Peter, and so God took his life. He played the politician, and his politics killed him. He dressed in such a way that the people exclaimed its splendor, and yet he died a shameful, slow, humiliating death. Various ideas have been proposed about his death. Interestingly, there is medical evidence that Luke, who by the way was a physician, was in fact very accurate in his description of Herod's death. The word that he used means quite literally eaten by worms. Intestinal worms of a severe nature were not unusual in that time. One authority states that it is quite likely that he had tapeworms that had formed a cyst that then burst, suddenly releasing hundreds of thousands of parasitic worms that attacked his internal organs. Nice way to go. Herod's physical death, as gruesome as it was, is mild in compared to the awfulness of his eternal fate. The Bible says of those who reject God, who fight against God, Mark chapter 9, verse 48, and where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. God's judgment awaits all those who reject the gospel of Christ. Not only is God's judgment inescapable, but finally God's purposes cannot be stopped. God always wins. The story concerning Herod's opposition to God ends in an unexpected way. Verse 24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. Note the the conjunction, but. Herod faced God's judgment, but the word of God which is another way of saying the gospel message, it continued to grow. Herod clung to his pride and not only suffered the loss of his physical life, but he faced eternal judgment. But but others who who humbled themselves and received the good news that Christ had died for their sins were continuing to be saved. Herod dies, but the gospel lives. Secondly, I want you to note that failures are redeemable. I'm glad that Luke mentions John Mark. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Mark is listed as part of the first 
missionary team in Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. As Barnabas and Saul set out from Jerusalem, John Mark proved himself to be an important helper. That is, until they reached Perga. However, at this stage in the journey, John Mark gave up and he went home. Now, we can only speculate as the reason John Mark may have decided to return, but we're never told. But whatever his reason, Paul saw it as a defection and a desertion. And he found it extremely hard to excuse John Mark. It seems obvious that whatever John Mark's reasons may have been for leaving the missionary party, Paul looked upon it as an inexcusable desertion. So when a, mission, a second missionary journey is being planned, Barnabas wants to again bring John Mark. And a contention became so sharp between Paul, who said no, and Barnabas, who said yes, that ultimately they split over this issue. And John Mark went with Barnabas. What is important here is that John Mark is ultimately restored. Even Paul later realized and said about Timothy he was useful for the ministry. In fact, tradition tells us that Mark became the companion of Peter. Peter described him as my son. And that same tradition tells us that Mark's gospel is the recollections of Peter. The last thing that I would have you note today is that God uses ordinary people. I want to take you all the way back to when we saw the Christians arrive in Antioch. I want you to remember that it was not the apostles who brought the word. Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but by average members of the body of Christ who were willing to share their faith. They did not preach as we understand the term today, but in their everyday context, they told other people about Jesus Christ. Over their work counters, in their marketplaces, in their shops, their social gatherings, they talked about Jesus who was the Lord of their lives. And the work of God went on. Persecution could not stop it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It is folly to fight against God. You can't match his power. You cannot possibly avoid his judgment. And you cannot impede his, his purposes in this world. So I'll conclude this morning by asking you, what is your response to the Word of God? Would you say to me, oh, this gospel is an old-fashioned thing. How in this day and age can anyone really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? Oh, no, we believe there are many ways to salvation, some would say. Would you say to me, Pastor, you just need to read more? Then you'd understand how limited your ideas of God are. 
You're saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is just for old-fashioned, simple, unintellectual people. If you believe those things, then I have news for you. God will not tolerate any resistance to his sovereign power. And those who resist him shall experience a great and irredeemable fall. Let's pray. Even in our day, Father, we recognize that there are those who fight against you. Some even, maybe in this place, have set themselves in opposition to you, at least to say, I don't believe that old, the old gospel stuff. Jesus is fine, but what about all the people who don't believe in Jesus? I just can't believe that Jesus is the only way. But when, in fact, your Bible says that Jesus alone is the way to the Father, there is no other path, there is no other way, there is no other truth. We live with that truth, and, Father, we're willing to trust our eternity to that truth. If there's one here today that has never received Christ as their personal Savior, has never recognized their sin, turned from that sin and asked Jesus to save them, then, Lord, I pray that they might do that today. Help them realize that in so doing, they could leave this place knowing that they've settled the matter of eternity forever. Father, we ask for your presence in this time of invitation. For you ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?